Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Today, I'll be talking with Philip Pettit about his book, On the People's Terms, A Republican Theory and Model of Democracy, which is newly published by Cambridge University Press. Philip Pettit is the Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Professor of Politics and Human Values at Princeton University. In political philosophy, republicanism is the name of a distinctive framework for thinking about politics. At its core is a distinctive conception of freedom, according to which freedom consists in non-domination, that is, in not being subject to the arbitrary will of another. This Republican conception of the free person contrasts with a competing view, according to which freedom is primarily a property not of persons, but of choices. On this view, one is free insofar as one enjoys the absence of interference. Now, for the past few decades, Philip has been engaged in a sustained effort to recapture and revive this Republican insight as to the nature of freedom. In a series of articles and books, he has developed and defended the Republican view of freedom and drawn out its implications for politics and law. In his new book, On the People's Terms, Pettit elaborates further his Republican ideal by articulating a conception of democracy to accompany the fundamental commitment to non-domination. The book examines the full range of topics one would expect, justice, to legitimacy, and democratic institutional design. This is a highly detailed and, I would say, meticulously argued book, and there's a lot to discuss. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Philip Pettit. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? Fine, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Pleasure. Today, my guest is Philip Pettit. His new book is titled On the People's Terms, A Republican Theory and Model of Democracy. This book is based on Philip Seeley lectures and has just been published by Cambridge University Press. Now, as those who know Philip's work will know well by now, um, Philip has been for a long time engaged in the project of rediscovering and reinvigorating an old tradition in political philosophy um, that was um, somewhat abandoned uh, in the modern period. This tradition uh, is classical republicanism, uh, as developed in the Roman period and somewhat resuscitated in the American colonial period. Um, At the heart of Philip's republicanism is a theory of freedom that associates freedom with non-domination. Philip has been working out these Republican ideas uh, for two decades or more. His new book carries further the project by identifying a Republican view of democracy, 
Now, there's a lot to discuss in this book, and it's very exciting, and I highly recommend it. But before we get into the details of the book, Philip, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into philosophy and how you came to write this book? Oh, dear. <laughs> it's <always laughs> a bit hard to uh, talk about yourself in this context. Uh, well, I suppose the uh, first thing to say is I'm Irish by background. It's probably obvious from, uh, from my accent. I hope it is. Um, and um, at 17, I decided to train to be a Catholic priest um, at the same time as going to university. And um, when I went to university, I um, actually had a choice basically between doing classics and math, which were my two sort of favorite subjects. I chose for the classics and uh, found about three months in that uh, I was asking myself, you might say existentialist, though I wouldn't have called them that at the time, questions about, you know, exactly why was it important to study the classics, what did I want to do, and so on, and uh, began to have doubts that this was really what I wanted to devote myself to. Um, and at that stage, looked around for what else in university might interest me. I had actually signed up and was doing a mathematical logic course because of the math interest, and it turned out that that qualified me to, uh, to do honors philosophy, a subject of which I knew absolutely nothing. And so I set about learning uh, about what philosophy did. And I remember I was so excited when I learned that you would be able to devote your time to thinking about issues like free will, like morality, like whether there was a God, like it just was like an eye opener for me before I ever opened a philosophy book. The very idea of what philosophy was uh, deeply excited me. And so I turned to, uh, I did indeed in my second year at university then, and go into honours philosophy, as we called it in the Irish system. And there were a very small group of us doing the philosophy, and we had really a great deal of independence, I must, I must say, because of the seminary connection. I obviously had to learn quite a bit of Aquinas and the uh, Thomistic scholastic tradition, but I was really, I had a lot of free reign as to what else I studied, and there were a lot of the work was really independent study, and uh, two years in, I felt strongly this was, this was really all I wanted to do with my life, and uh, at that point, I uh, opted out of the uh, clerical vocation, and uh, I um, did a master's in philosophy, and those were wonderful years from the point of view of people looking for jobs. It was the very late 60s. And I think uh, I had two external examiners on my, on my master's thesis, and each of them offered me a job straight away, which was really um, a poignant sort of contrast with how it is for our students today. But I did take one of those jobs, which was in Queen's University, Belfast. And um, I stayed there a year before actually going to the other job, which had been on offer from the other external exam, was in University College Dublin. So that's how I got into philosophy, and uh, I did my PhD actually part-time while being a lecturer in University College Dublin. That was in the late 60s, early 70s. Right. That's an odd um, uh, career trajectory so far, um, to have the job before, uh, you know, from the master's defense and uh, then finish the PhD while you're working at your job. 
I know, well, <laughs> odd. As they say, you ain't heard nothing yet. I mean, the, the training <laughs> is extraordinarily idiosyncratic. I mean, partly because of the independent study aspect of it. So while I did learn a fair bit, I suppose, about the history of philosophy and certainly about the Thomistic tradition, and that was absolutely required in, my, in that context, um, I became enthused on two quite different fronts. One was I was really turned on by Jean-Paul Sartre and, in fact, learned French in order to write an undergraduate a senior thesis, as we call it in Princeton, a, an undergraduate sort of dissertation, um, on bad faith in the thought of, of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. I remember going to Paris, working there for two months as a waiter, and um, gradually as my French improved, you know, going around the French uh, bookshops looking for a particular book I wanted by someone called Francis Janson, and uh, I remember I would ask this question in French every time, do you have a book qui s'appelle Le Problème Moral et Le Pensée de Sartre? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> about two months in, someone said, do you speak English? <laughs> I'm sorry, someone didn't say, do you speak English? So at that point, uh, I felt I was ready to read uh, some of the stuff in French. Anyhow, I did, I did my undergraduate thesis on that faith and the thought of Sartre. And indeed, my first paper was on, a published paper some years later was on Sartre. But I did my MA thesis uh, on the other uh, center of interest in these independent studies I've conducted as an undergraduate, which was, which was on um, basically um, the philosophy of the early G.E. Moore and Bertrand Russell, the philosophy that Moore developed between about 1898 and 1905, which deeply shaped, um, well, Russell's philosophy of mathematics. He says in the Principles of Mathematics that his philosophy in almost its entirety is derived from the work of his friend G. Moore, which had absolutely intrigued me. And so, um, so I did my MA thesis, my master's thesis on that. In, that. in fact, that was also one of the early articles I published on the, uh, the early thought of G. Moore and Bertrand Russell. So when did when did political philosophy enter into the picture? Well, in um, in Dublin, I was expected. I remember to teach. Yes, I think quite early on, I taught a uh, a course in political philosophy. So I began to get into it at that point, and then I was very fortunate. I wanted, having done this doctorate part time which actually, again, was on Merleau-Ponty and, and Ricoeur, which was more continental in focus than analytical. Though I, from the very earliest days, I always felt that was a false, a false dichotomy, that the continental tradition, at least as I knew it, this is now before postmodernism or anything, was really different mainly in, it, in, the, in the sort of canvas with which it worked. You know, it was, it was like a Titian rather than a Claude Lorraine, it was mm-hmm. you know, a broad canvas looking at all sorts of things, everything put together. That really excited me about Sartre, whereas I thought analytical philosophy was more interesting for the precision and the exactness and the focus that it brought. So, but I did feel um, about uh, 71, 72 after I finished my doctorate that I really wanted some experience elsewhere. And I applied for, I think, about 60 or 70 postdoctoral fellowships all over the world. I remember spending a month or more uh, getting together these applications. In those days, of course, you had to post everything off. It probably cost me a fortune in stamps. But I was very, very lucky. I, I, a college in um, uh, Cambridge University in England, Trinity Hall, offered me, interviewed me and offered me a 
postdoctoral fellowship, a research fellowship, as they called it. So I then had three years in Cambridge, England, where in a way, I suppose I rendered my background less idiosyncratic by attending courses and, you know, beefing up in different aspects of the subject. But there, when I was in, in England, I, I came to be very friendly with Partha Dasgupta, a well-known economist now, who is a colleague in Trinity Hall. And uh, we both got interested in, in Rawls's work. And, um, and that, that was really, for me, a big turning point. I, I did, for the first time, get engaged in political philosophy uh, as a, so to speak, a real center of interest, although I always maintain my other centers of interest or try to in philosophy of mind, metaphysics, and other issues. Right. Um, so, as I, as I, this is uh, all fascinating. Um, uh, but um, let's talk about the book. Um, the. Um, so as I said a, a moment ago, uh, you've been um, a, a real uh, a dynamic uh, and in, in many ways I'll, I'll say fascinating uh, political philosopher, um, particularly uh, because you're the spokesperson of a very distinctive and I think in many ways a highly attractive um, political uh, framework or framework for political philosophy that's Republican rather than liberal uh, in nature. And at the core of that um, uh, that framework is a distinctive set of thoughts about freedom. Um, uh, and as I, I said a moment ago, it's freedom understood as non-domination rather than as um, non-interference or, or something else. Could you, uh, since it informs so much of, of what you're doing and uh, it certainly is um, uh, at the core of, of, of the new book on the people's terms, um, could you tell us a bit about the Republican conception of freedom that you propose? Yeah, happily. Um, so just perhaps to set it in the context of um, of my interest and developments, you were talking about it, I, it was basically after coming to Australia. I, I moved to Australia in 1983. I had gone from Cambridge back to Dublin, then back to England, where um, I started a small department of philosophy, well, of human studies, but I was a professor of philosophy at Bradford University in England and then moved to Australia in 83. At this point, I was very, very interested in, in uh, I was absolutely, absolutely consumed with the idea that um, philosophy had been too atomistic in its image of social relations. And of course, that fitted with a lot of what was happening. Uh, there was Kripke's work on rule following, for example. There was Burge's work, if you remember, on individualism and the mental. Uh, sure. Those were the themes that really engrossed me. And uh, I was writing a book that was later published as The Common Mind in 93. But in the course of doing that work, I felt that, well, if one is to be seriously not an atomist in social ontology, in other words, to believe that people depend on one another other than causally, in a non-causal way for the development of some of the characteristic human capacities, such as the capacity to reason, for example, to perform as a person, um, then that ought, if it's an interesting thesis, that as were social non-atomism, then it ought to have implications for political values. And I've been thinking about how it might impact on a value like freedom. Um, in the context of thinking about that, and um, I, somebody said, as I sketched the ideas I was then playing around with, um, have you read some of Quentin Skinner's recent work in the history of Republican thought? And um, Quentin had actually been a good friend of mine back in, in Cambridge days. 
And um, so I read his papers and it really opened up for me a, um, a whole new sort of vista and a way of connecting the stuff I'd been thinking about more abstractly with historical themes. The traditional sort of reading of the Republican tradition, and I mean now the tradition, as you said earlier in your introduction, beginning in a way with classical Rome, people like Cicero, figures like Polybius, then the Renaissance, figures like Machiavelli and his discourses on Livy, and then the 17th century English tradition of uh, people like Algernon Sidney and James Harrington, through to the American in the 18th century with figures like the Federalist Papers, Thinking about that tradition, and most people previous to Quentin had argued that um, in that tradition, people thought about freedom in a positive manner. They used that term in a sense that really Benjamin Constant and Isaiah Berlin had defined, which is to say that, at least in political context, to be free meant to be part of a voting member of a self-determining community. And uh, what Quentin really showed in those articles of his was that in this tradition, you don't find that way of thinking about freedom. In those articles, he actually argued that you get something much closer to freedom as non-interference, freedom just not being interfered with by other people, not this positive notion of to be free meant to be politically engaged. I was absolutely fascinated by that. And I, I suppose I put a somewhat different spin on it, but really using a lot of his um, analyses of the historical texts, and I came to think that what was really distinctive in this tradition, in the way of thinking about freedom, was that to be free meant not to have a master in your life, not to have a dominus in your life, not to suffer actually what the Romans themselves called dominatio, which is our domination, which is the uh, status of being under a dominus, under a lord. And it, I felt it was clear in the tradition that even when you weren't being interfered with, if you were under the will of somebody else, if you were under the dominatio of somebody else, uh, then you weren't a free person. Uh, in fact, um, it was pretty obvious that freedom was contrasted with slavery and that even if a slave was treated very nicely by his master or her master, the slave was still unfree just for virtue of that fact. Freedom required that you really didn't, you weren't subject to mastery. So that was really the, uh, that was the, the, the key that got me started. And um, just to, perhaps, can I go on or do you? Do yes, you, please. Well, something I often use to illustrate the sort of notion of freedom as non-domination is um, are two figures from the play A Doll's House by, uh, by uh, Ibsen. And the two figures are, of course, Thorvald, the husband, and Nora, the wife. And if you remember in the play, at least the beginning of the play, uh, things go a bit awry later, but when things are hunky-dory at the beginning of the play, it's clear that um, Thorvald absolutely dotes on Nora so that he is not going to interfere with any of her choices, really. In fact, the only thing he denies her, as it were, is macaroons, and she even gets that because she can hide the macaroons in her skirts. <laughs> Now, Thorvald has all the chips, so to speak. He's got all the legal, the cultural, the social sort of power. She really is entirely under his lordship, uh, under his mastery, under his domination, as it were. That's the relationship. And now you ask yourself, is, uh, is Nora free in the things she does? After all, she's given perfect license, as it were, and a whole range of choices she can choose as she wishes 
And that's what Thorvald allows her. So is she free? Well, in this older sense, I felt, feel quite strongly that you could not say that Nora is free because she's under the will of Thorvald. Now, it's true that she can, for any choice, choose one option or another, depending on what she wishes, but that's only because of Thorvald's permission. In the old Republican phrase, she can do those things, but only come permissu, with permission, by the grace and leave of another, a master, in this case, Thorvald. Putting it more philosophically, she is dependent on his will, counterfactually, in the sense that should he turn nasty, should he cease to be so doting and indulgent, then of course she wouldn't have this leeway in the choices she makes. So whether or not she's able to choose according to her own wishes, preferences, her own will, depends on his will. Uh, so she is in that sense under his will, even though he's actually not interfering. Now that's, I think of the Republican notion of freedom as having two aspects to it. And what that highlights is the first aspect, which I say involves the fact that you can be dominated, and in the sense of freedom as non-domination, unfree, even though you are not interfered with. So you can have domination without interference. And mm -hmm. That's the, the, the primary sort of implication of this way of thinking about freedom. Shall I go on and just mention the Yes, what's the second? So the second I take it is that there could be instances of interference that are nonetheless not freedom lessening. Is that true? Exactly, that are not dominating. Right. It seems to me also a strand in this tradition of thinking. So in this tradition of thinking, the slave without a master, the slave, the service senior domino without a master, who is not yet protected against others, is certainly not free. To be free, you have to be established in the law as a kivus, as a citizen, who is protected against others so that no one can throw their weight around with him. And that's what's required in order for, um, uh, for someone to enjoy freedom. But in this way of thinking, uh, there's another aspect to it, which is that obviously the law, in order to give people that protection against private domination, has got to impose restrictions on people as to how they may behave. Uh, so it's got to, in that sense, interfere uh, in people's lives. But for the Republican way of thinking, it may be over-optimistic, but the way of thinking was that you can be interfered with by the law in that manner and yet not be dominated and so not made unfree in the sense of freedom as non-domination by the law. When will that be the case? Well, it'll be the case when you share equally with others in controlling what the law is, so that, as it were, you share with others the status of being the masters of the law, not the servants of the law, so that when it constrains you, it constrains you by your own will, so that while it interferes, uh, there is no domination. Uh, that means that the law protects you against private domination, um, and the law itself, because it's imposed by the shared will of the citizenry, so the traditional idea went, protects you against public domination. So that as a citizen, as a kivas, as someone protected by the law, but also in a position equally to share with others in controlling the law, uh, you enjoy this status of being no one's subject, of being enjoying non-subjection or non-domination. Let me let me just ask a, a, a quick question about about this. Um, 
So there could be instances where, um, although I am interfered with, I am not dominated, and therefore um, my freedom is not compromised. Could there be cases in which, through interference, perhaps by uh, a, a properly formed law, my freedom is enhanced? Could I be? Could my freedom be uh, sort of improved upon or, or augmented through uh, interference? Uh, yes, in the following sense. Um, in, order to, in order to establish for its citizenry a status for each of them of not being dominated by others, I mean, that was the traditional image, though, of course, the citizenry in the tradition were always, as in every tradition, restricted to uh, usually mainstream and propertied males, but certainly to males. Um, but the idea was that each citizen could enjoy this equal status as non-domination. Now, you can only, that's only possible if the law establishes the range of choice in which you are to be not dominated. Um, and that means that the interference of the law is not just um, playing the role of protecting you against others by stopping them interfering with you, it's also, before it gets to that stage of constraining others, it plays a positive enabling role in defining what the basic liberties are, what those choices are, such that each person should be able to exercise them without the domination of others. And so, for example, uh, the law carves out areas of discretion where people can exercise choice without domination we call them traditionally, I suppose, and they were called in the Republican tradition, the foundational or the fundamental or the basic liberties, meaning choices that for each person uh, should be sacrosanct, meaning that person should be able to make them without the private domination of others and indeed without the public domination of the state. But in order to set up that whole apparatus, um, that infrastructure, so to speak, of freedom, the law has to play that enabling role, first of all, of defining those basic liberties. Right. So that's helpful. Um, so let me just ask about uh, one one figure or one image that you use uh, in trying to um, uh, flesh out uh, this Republican conception of freedom. Uh, and a lot of what you've already said, um, it seems clear that one of the Republican concerns is with understanding freedom as a kind of status of persons rather than a property of, of individual actions. Um, and one of the, the ways that I think you try to capture this, this sort of difference between the, the non-domination view and, and its competing uh, competitor, the, um, the uh, non-interference view, is by making reference to something you call the eyeball test. Um, can you tell us about the eyeball test? Yes, well, th this, I mean, it's a, it's an attempt, when I say the eyeball test, it's, it's meant as a, a sort of vivid metaphor for bringing out what in uh, everyday life uh, this sort of freedom means. Now, it is absolutely true, so let me just emphasize that, as you say, that in the tradition, uh, the main uh, subject of the predicate free is a person. You talk about a person being free, a lieber rather than a choice being free. In fact, uh, choices are often said to be free insofar as they're the choices of a free person in the exercise of his or her status as a free person. And to be a free person, as you say, 
is involves the status of being so protected in the field of force of the law against others and against public domination of the law itself that you have you're able to well now in the tradition phrases are used very strongly like you're able to stand on your own two feet you're able to look others in the eye you don't have to kowtow or phone or toady and you are your own person you are, in the Latin phrase, which already appears in Justinian's law code, you are sui juris, meaning you're of your own jurisdiction. This was the image of the free person in the tradition, and painted in very vivid colors in lots of these writings. So, for example, in Milton's writing, you know, he talks about the free person as living in a country where you can walk tall and not have to, as we're, doff your cap to the grandees or anything like that. You can look in that sense everyone in the eye. Now, that phrase, look everyone in the eye, struck me that, well, there's a really sort of vivid, uh, everyday um, sort of test. Someone asks you, what does it mean to enjoy freedom in your Republican sense, which is, after all, quite technical, requires some apparatus of definition. And I think a quick and dirty way of communicating it is, you enjoy this freedom. If it's the case that you can look others in the eye, uh, without fear, so to speak, of their interfering with you in your sphere, and equally without having to defer to them in order to get them to allow you to conduct your choices in this sphere. You are indeed sui juris, you are your own person, your own man or woman. So I don't know whether it communicates this to you, but it seems to me that that sense of being able to look someone full square in the eye, and it's a phrase that occurs in lots of European languages, uh, that it's a nice sort of emblem of what it is to enjoy freedom. Can I mention what? just a, in one connection, as you know, um, President Zapatero in, in Spain, um, in um, at least the first uh, parliament where he was prime minister from 2004 to 2008, he, um, he introduced a lot of uh, social legislation and um, to my amazement, as I discovered uh, while he was actually campaigning, used my book Republicanism as a sort of handbook of the sorts of policies he wanted and talked a lot in public about freedom as non-domination and then actually um, invited me to give a lecture in Spain uh, at the beginning of his uh, presidency or prime ministership, as it in effect is, in 2004. And uh, he, won, he, he introduced quite a number of policies which he traced to the Republican background, including one of his initial bills, which was a same-sex um, marriage bill, uh, a homosexual marriage, as it was called, licensing it, legitimating it. And it's very striking. He himself used this quite a bit. He used the eyeball test explicitly in Parliament. I, I was very taken by this, I must say. He stood before Parliament in defending this bill, which was not pushed for by the party and was not uh, even responding to any great popular movement. It was really a case where he led from the front. Uh, he pushed the bill and indeed got massive public support for it, over 60%. But the lines he used were always on, uh, like in tune with the eyeball test, he would say, he said in Parliament, he said, which of you can stand and look a homosexual in the eye and say to him or to her, um, I do not think you are worthy of having your personal relations given the same civic stamp, civic signature and approval, seal of approval, as are um, heterosexuals. 
And that was exactly the line he used. And the idea was, how can you expect someone who is homosexual to look you in the eye as an equal if you, exercising the public power that you have, are going to deny them this status? I felt that really uh, underlined how vivid a test it was. That speech was widely reported and was thought to be quite influential in bringing people around in support of same-sex marriage. Well, I think that the, the, the metaphor, as you put it, of the eyeball test uh, is, as you say, it's, it's, it's a very um, effective, I think, uh, instrument for articulating what is at the heart of the Republican view. It is the looking others in the eye and walking tall and never having to cower before anyone uh, um, image of, of, of the free free man. So I, 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 th- those sections of the book where you discuss it, I thought were, were very, very effective. Thank you. I'm glad to uh, – I'm glad that you're of a common mind on that. <laughs> so let, let, let's move on to um, uh, to the the, the areas uh, in the book that um, uh, um, uh, where, where you're expanding uh, the account. Um, so the book is interested in. I, I take it moving in sort of um, three rough parts where you you give a a, a, a new. Uh, and in some ways, a newly nuanced account of of your conception of freedom. Then you you take on uh, questions about what conception of social justice follows from this Republican conception of freedom, and then uh, you address uh, issues about legitimacy and and particularly democratic legitimacy. So let's let's start with the the, the second uh, um, movement in this trio. Um, so y- you uh, in the book you you lay out a Republican vision of social justice. And uh, as we all know, um, justice has been the the core of uh, English-speaking political philosophy uh, for at least uh, 40 years or more. Um, So you defend the view that the state must promote um, freedom as uh, non-domination among its citizens um, on the basis of equal concern for each. so it sounds as if then that republicanism is a kind of egalitarianism. Can you uh, fill in some of the details? Yeah, I mean, yes, in the following sense, as Ronald Dworkin once said, um, almost every philosophy that any of us would give countenance to is egalitarian in the sense of arguing that the state in dealing with its citizens should treat each as equal with others. People should be treated as equals. I call that expressive egalitarianism and the fact that the philosophy is built on an equal concern for the welfare of each. And certainly in that sense, I think that uh, republicanism uh, clearly in a a modern day form, I mean, this is from the pre-modern form where citizens were restricted to property mainstream males, in any um, acceptable form, it's got to be a case of treating um, all as equals. Now, in effect, of course, that's going to mean treating all adult, able-minded, more or less permanent residents, let's use the word citizens for that category, as equals. There are special theories obviously needed for the rights of children, for example, how they should be treated, or the rights of those who are not able-minded are indeed the rights of those who are not permanent residents. Uh, But it's essentially egalitarian in this expressive way to begin with uh, of treating all citizens 
as equals. It shares that, I would say, with almost every uh, serious political philosophy today. Of course, to be an egalitarian, you've got to not just say everyone should be treated as equals by the state or under the state, but you've also got to say in what respect they should be treated as equals. And that's where, as I think of it, of course, republicanism makes a specific sort of entry. Right. So what is the respect in which we are uh, – what is the metric of equality then for the Republican? Well, as you'd expect, it's bound to be um, freedom as non-domination. Let, let me just say that before I expand on this that I think in doing political philosophy like this, it's very important to recognize what you're doing. I mean, as I see what I'm doing, it's certainly not propounding an ideology of some kind, you know, which is the be-all and end-all. I see it as a research program. Uh, you're seeing how, if we start with these ideas, how far you can elaborate an overall theory that gives us a very attractive view of the polity, that gives us policies that seem on reflection to be more or less satisfactory and so on, and that, you know, holds up well against what we know of psychology and sociology and indeed economics and all of the other framework of uh, the social and human sciences. And so in, in, in thinking about what it would be for people to enjoy expressive equality in a state and saying, well, let's try out freedom. Think of it as a, an experiment, so to speak. Let's see where we would be led if we took the ideal of freedom as non-domination and said, now here's how the state should be, treat people as equals. It should uh, ensure for, provide for their equal enjoyment of freedom as non-domination. I mean, that's what they the research program is, the idea is to explore that uh, proposal and see what its implications are. And that's what I tried to do in that particular part of the book. And um, of course, it's not the main focus of the book. The main focus of the book is on democracy and legitimacy, which we'll come to in a moment. But very briefly on the social justice, I think of, um, I think of justice here slightly more narrowly than Rawls and other theorists do. I think of justice as the feature of a system of law, a system of government, a social system more broadly. The feature of that system, in virtue of which you think now this system appropriately um, treats its citizens as equals. It establishes a dispensation under which those citizens count in what ought to be an attractive sense as uh, equal with one another. And what I suggest is that in that sense of justice, if we think about the institutions and the policies that would enable people, citizens in that society, to be equal in the sphere of freedom as non-domination, uh, then that would be a very, uh, if we can do that, that would have good claims on being an articulation of what justice in the society means. And the institutions or policies I envisage are these. You need a system of law, first of all, that defines a set of basic liberties. These are going to be choices, um, as large as it's possible to make them, but choices which everyone can exercise in his or her own right and without getting in the way of others. Um, traditionally, but I think each society has its own way of articulating them. There is no, so to speak, natural blueprint or template of these liberties, but they're in the broad categories of clearly freedom of speech, uh, freedom of religious practice, freedom of association, of associating with anyone who will associate with you, freedom of movement, freedom of 
choosing occupation between occupations available to you, and of course, freedom under local property conventions to um, do with your property as anyone else can do with their property, whatever that is. So first of all, the system is going to have to establish a set of basic liberties for each. But then I want to argue in articulating what it would be really to provide for each person the status of freedom as non-domination. It's going to have to be the case that each person is, first of all, empowered uh, to exercise those basic liberties, meaning they're provided with the infrastructure of education, of a social insurance safety net, and of everything else that is needed in order to ensure that they're able to exercise these choices. Then they're provided with a system of protection against, for example, those who might turn criminally offensive in order to enable them to exercise those choices. And they're equally provided with a more specialized system of protection under which even though they exist in, let's say, a relationship of dependency that's often asymmetrical, to others, as in sometimes the husband-wife relationship can be or the relationship within a workplace can be, that there are enough protections in place and social structures in place that no one in virtue, even in such a relationship, has to hang on the goodwill of others. The idea is that everyone should have enough in the way of resources and enough in the way of protections that they pass the eyeball test. Um, That's to say that they can each indeed and of course it's often ready test, uh, look others in the eye without fear or favor, um, without fear of their interfering with them in their sphere of the basic liberties or without their having to depend on the favor of others for being able to exercise those freedoms. They are their own person within this sphere. I suggest that if people had enough resources and protections to enable them to achieve that status in relation to one another, then that offers a very vivid and I think persuasive image of what it would be for a society to be just. In this society, there need not be, um, for example, total material equality, which in any case is, most of us think, an infeasible ideal, but it's also not necessary because you can have freedom as non-domination. You can be able to look others in the eye, even though they're wealthier than you in various ways. But of course, there are sorts of poverty, certainly, that would undermine freedom as non-domination. And there may be inequalities of wealth that are so gross that they wouldn't undermine freedom as non-domination. And you just look for as much material equality as is required for equality in this status. And equally, you look for as much equality in other dimensions, like capabilities, resources, happiness, whatever, as is required for freedom for equality in this status of um, freedom, freedom as non-domination. Right. So then it looks as if um, uh, the Republican view, uh, and, and, and uh, I think this is a, as a virtue of the view, by the way, although I suspect that um, some detractors might see this as a, as a vice, that um, the Republican view sort of very tightly ties together a set of considerations that on other uh, philosophical frameworks for thinking about politics are sort of kept in their separate places. So we've got a conception of freedom as non-domination, our conception of social justice is intimately tied to that, as you've just explained, because justice requires a kind of promotion of the status of freedom uh, among people understood now as uh, as equals. Um, 
now moving to the to to the to the real core of the uh, of the book, which is the, the, the stuff about uh, oh uh, yes, so, um, because you, um, what you're going to say is that so speak, I, I tie equality into freedom. Uh, mm-hmm. where they're normally kept apart. That, that was your thought. And I agree with that. Um, I think that once you think of freedom as a status, uh, then equality gets to be part, so to speak, of the requirements of freedom. And that point, by the way, is made very explicitly both by Cicero and by someone I regard as a renegade Republican because he introduces other themes that are not of the older tradition. That's Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, <laughs> But I don't think we should shy away from that. And if I can just make one comment that's important. Sure. I don't think of this as sort of like a hegemony of freedom, you know, that there's only one value, freedom. That's all we need to worry about. I think that that's true only in the following sense, that freedom is what I think of as a gateway good. If we construe freedom as freedom as non-domination, interpreting it as the status we've been talking about, then I think what is true is by thinking about how to construct a social or political system so as to promote equal enjoyment of freedom as non-domination in that sense, uh, you'll end up actually providing for other values as well, like equality or, of course, like just levels of welfare and so on. And it's not that they're not values in their own right. Of course, they are. It's not that freedom is the only value there is. It's not. It's only one of many values. But it's a sort of gateway value or a gateway good or ideal in the sense that look after it and the other values you look after automatically. Right. Um, yeah, I, that sounds to me totally right. Um, so l- let's, let me then ask about uh, uh, the conception of democracy, because I, 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 I was very moved by um, one line of argument uh, in the book that, that, that um, begins the, uh, the, the discussion of democracy, where you argue that... Um, Competing uh, traditions or competing uh, analytical frameworks for thinking about politics don't really appreciate the centrality of the question of political legitimacy. That is that um, you charge social contractarian views and uh, contemporary contractualist views with sort of putting – legitimacy on the back burner. It's an afterthought. It's something that gets taken care of a little bit later in the theory or downstream in things. you see one of the virtues of republicanism um, to be that it takes up the question of legitimacy right from the start. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that thought? Because uh, I, I found that deeply intriguing. Well, just as situated in the larger tradition, I mean, the issue of justice, as we've been talking about, social justice, is really the issue of how to guard people against private domination. In other words, if people are protected by the law against others so that they enjoy this status, then they're not privately dominated. But of course, consistently with being privately undominated, consistently with having a law that protects each of us privately from the incursions of others, so to speak, that law uh, might itself be imposed on us, for example, by a benevolent despot, by a single individual who is benevolent enough to create a law that protects us equally each from the others, but which is still a law imposed on us by the will of that benevolent despot. Now, all of us would agree, I take it, and certainly in the tradition it was absolutely central, that that would be a huge, enormous flaw in a system, that the law, however just, in my sense, of horizontal justice, protecting individuals against one another, that the law in that sense, however horizontally just, should be vertically so unjust, or as I like to say, illegitimate, in being imposed willy-nilly 
on the people. Of course, that's what colonial governments traditionally did. They were often benevolent despots, but they imposed laws, often quite good laws, let's suppose, on their colonies. Uh, but it was the fact of their being imposed that made them illegitimate. So this opens up the fact that there's a second concern in domestic politics, apart from the concern with justice, which is the concern with legitimacy. Now, in the literature as it exists at the moment, as I see it, you get two approaches to legitimacy. You get the standard approach, um, which you describe as putting legitimacy on the back burner. And I, I like that phrase. I think that is what happens in people like Rawls and even Dworkin. Uh, so, for example, Dworkin, when he asks what is it that makes a society legitimate or a system legitimate, he says basically, so in his recent book, um, the later Ronnie Dworkin, of course, now as he is the last, but in his recent book, um, um, Justice for Hedgehogs, he says that a legitimate system is a system that tries to be just. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's sort of suggestive of this whole this one approach which treats legitimacy as a, a sort of measure of justice rather than really a quite distinct requirement on the system. Um, that, I, I think, really melds or welds together and confuses two quite different concerns. So I was thinking of that as the horizontal concern and the vertical concern. The other approach you find in the literature, which I uh, really like in some ways, is the work is associated mainly with... Um, John Simmons, A.J. Simmons, mm -hmm. has been one of the foremost critics of the standard Rawlsian uh, broadly approach that um, mixes up legitimacy with justice. And he argues that a state would only be legitimate insofar as its citizens actually consent uh, to the rule of the government of the state and of the particular government power over them. In other words, he goes for a view of the requirements of legitimacy that are very like those that Locke, at one stage at any rate, suggests or supports. The trouble with John Simmons's view is that while he does recognize, let's call it the vertical concern, as distinct from the horizontal concern, he articulates the requirements of legitimacy in such a way that no contemporary state is legitimate, because, of course, right. the contemporary state is indeed um, consented to actively by all of its citizens. Um, so that suggested to me, is there a middle way? And that's where I feel that Republican theory at least points to towards a middle possibility. Because you remember, as I said, the second implication of thinking of freedom as non-domination is that you could be interfered with without being dominated. So what I try to explore in the book is the idea that Here's uh, what would make a government or a state legitimate if it were the case that insofar as the state exercises discretion, insofar as it's not just, so to speak, a historical necessity that was established, you know, long ago and doesn't represent anybody's imposition on us, insofar as the state exercises discretion um, interfering with us, it does so only subject to our power over it, subject to our agreement broadly over what it's doing. And I argue in the book that now there is an articulation of the requirement of legitimacy that does not meld it with the requirement of justice, that's different in that way from the Rawlsian wing, but on the other hand, that doesn't seem so completely infeasible as John Simmons's 
articulation of the requirements of legitimacy. And that's the guiding idea to try to explore that. That's the guiding idea of the, uh, of, the of the book when it turns to the issue of legitimacy and, and democracy. Right. So it seems that um, the, the, the sort of connecting link um, is the idea of control. That is that um, one of the things that can make um, uh, the state legitimate is uh, if its law and if its policies are subject to the control of um, a population that is um, free in your respect. Um, uh, can you say something about the nature of democratic control? And just as a, a sort of um, uh, a sidebar on, on, onto that question, does it follow that um, all non-democratic states are ipso facto illegitimate? Um, can we put aside that question? Sure. <laughs> remind me of it and I'll come back to it. Um, so it's important for me that the subtitle of the book says a Republican theory and model of democracy. So on the theory side, what the Republican view offers is a job specification for democracy. It says, look, the obvious job to give democracy is that of making uh, the state legitimacy, uh, legitimate. So the job specification, the theory, so to speak, of democracy will be what democracy is about is enabling people to have such control over how the law is imposed on them that the law and the system more broadly counts as a legitimate system. Um, so that's the theory of democracy. And that's important because, uh, you know, the normative theory of democracy should be telling us, why do we have democracy? What's it about? What's its point? You know? And that's actually not much addressed in much of the literature. I mean, in some, for example, deliberative democratic theories, it is addressed, but often it's not really addressed as to what exactly the point of democracy is. So first of all, republicanism gives you a theory of the point of democracy, the rationale of democracy. It's to make a system legitimate by giving people control over how the laws are imposed on them, an equally shared sort of control so that no one and is stood over, so to speak, by government in a way in which uh, distinguishes or discriminates against them. Okay, but then the question is, you see, you could embrace that theory, but say, oh, well, alas, though, there are no feasible institutions, you know, that would deliver that sort of equally shared control that might make us feel that the state is legitimate. It's just an infeasible, a nice idea, but an infeasible ideal. So what I wanted to do in the last two chapters of the book are to sketch a model of the institutions um, that would count roughly as institutions of democracy, of the institutions that would, democratic institutions that would enable people to have a control such that we could feel if they had that control, yes, reasonable to think that this is a legitimate state. And, um, and so turning to that, um, that issue of the model, so to speak, of democracy, um, I identify two elements that I think are quite crucial. One is that obviously people have to have an equal influence on what happens in government. Um, and then I make the point that people, of course, could have an equal influence without having any control whatsoever. And it's control that's important. So can I explain maybe that distinction between influence yes. and control? Yes, please. A little story uh, that illustrates the difference quite nicely, I think, is this. You're, you decide to go and, go and stand at a traffic intersection and pretend to be a traffic cop. 
So you start directing the traffic as if you were a traffic cop. Now, we know what's likely to happen. Um, let's say you're trying to override the lights in doing this. There'll be utter chaos. You know, some cars will follow you. Some will carry, follow the lights. Some will just get angry with you and blow their horns and wave their fists out the window and so on. <laughs> you'll, you'll have utter chaos. Now, in a case like that, assuming that you wanted to achieve the effect that the traffic cop would get in such a case, and you do certainly have influence. You've had a causal influence on the traffic. You've made a difference, right? But you haven't intuitively any control over the traffic because there isn't any systematic pattern effect such that your influence delivers that effect. It delivers only chaos as an effect. Now, I want to say that what we need in a democratic set of institutions that do the Republican job or might help to do the Republican job is a system of equally shared influence that would, equally de- that would deliver a system of equally shared control over what government does. And, you know, when I set out to write this, it was, or think about this work through it, and in a way it's been a work of almost 10 years, simultaneously with other projects. But uh, I really was not sure that I would be able to come up with a positive answer. In the book, I'm sure people, many people will not be persuaded, but I've identified something that um, satisfies me anyhow, and uh, that it points to a model of institutions that might satisfy, be reasonably satisfying. Right. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what's distinctive about this Republican view? Now, because it, it, so far it sounds to me like um, – one might hear especially just what you've just said and say, well, okay, Philip Pettit thinks that republicanism has the resources for um, getting us the things that we are antecedently inclined to want out of uh, our conception of democracy. But I take it that you also think that Republican, uh, the Republican conception of democracy has distinctive features. There are features of its conception of democracy that are not um, – that don't have analogs, for example, in um, you know, more straightforwardly liberal uh, uh, conceptions. Is that true? Well, yeah, I'm not sure about the word liberal, I suppose, you mean, okay. because I certainly don't do, I mean, I don't see the Republican approach here as being distinctively illiberal or not right. liberal, you know, as, as you're aware. Um, so, okay. So here's one um, uh, one one respect in which it, it differs. The model I offer differs from existing models, let's call them, they're often called theories of democracy. In many of the existing views of democracy or models of democracy, you find the idea is that what's important is that the people have influence. And that's all that's important. As in, um, you know, the view that so long as you give the people influence over government, that's what a democratic system is. That's all it takes to be democratic. And someone, I think, associated with that view is Joseph Schumpeter, Right. His famous 1942 book, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, in the famous chapters 20 and 21 of that book, he sketches a view of democracy as a system under which basically you give the people a certain amount of influence, and like a, the influence of a lottery in selecting who's going to be in power, what party is going to gain control over government, and that's the be-all and end-all. I mean, he thinks, and he's surely right, that democracy in that sense, a democracy of mere influence, uh, might uh, 
certainly be a lot better than not many dynastic or non-democratic regimes, um, serving at least as perhaps uh, as well as a lottery might in suggest in selecting who's going to be who's going to be in government and therefore protecting against a dynasty holding on to power. But of course, democracy, if it's merely conceived of as a system that gives people influence on who's in power, um, would not satisfy the Republican rationale for democracy. That wouldn't uh, give people equal control. After all, the influence people have might be chaotic. It might be the influence that I have on the traffic when I play traffic cop at the intersection. It mightn't have any sort of, uh, any really... uh, significant effect on the policies or the institutions that actually are in place. And what I argue in the book is that I first of all sketched the system of equal influence that you need um, in any system. And on that front, I think I'm, it defends a set of fairly radical uh, egalitarian proposals about democratic influence, but uh, and ones that I think many um, more at least radical thinkers are happily going to endorse. It's uh, not all that dramatically novel, so obviously it's going to argue strongly against moneyed elites having special influence on government, so it's going to argue against campaign finance of various sorts. It's going to argue in favor of you know districting taking a certain shape. It's going to argue in favor of, uh, for example, some aspects of government being put out of electoral hands into the hands of people appointed for a fixed term who are subject to other constraints because left in electoral hands, left in the hands of elected representatives, those representatives are going to be simply too motivated to exercise those tasks for their own party political ends and not from the, uh, not in a way that is responsive to the people who elect them example, districting. So we all know that when political parties do the districting, as in the United States, for example, that they invariably look for either a political party advantage or do a compromise with the other party, whereby you get safe party political seats. Whereas if you had an independent commission that did the districting, as in many parts of the world, uh, subject to various criteria, answerable to the populace and to parliament, indeed, for how they do it, you can get a much fairer, as we naturally think of the system of districting, that will actually work for equal influence of people. So that's one aspect, getting a system of equal influence. And there, there are a whole set of democratic reforms that the book, the model, points to as being absolutely essential. And then the, the next chapter on the model of the Republican model of democracy um, tries to identify a way in which such a system of equal influence can be organized so that it delivers something that we might think of as control, which people equally share, by the people over the policies that government adopts. And the core idea there, as um, you'll be aware from reading the book, uh, Mm -hmm. is an idea that's shared a good part with the deliberative theory of democracy, which is that if you add crucial nodes in the system, if you have um, uh, institutions of deliberation where the people involved in those institutions and those committees, as it may be at specific parts of the system, like a court, for example, like an agency committee, or right up at the Congress or the Parliament or the Cabinet, if at these various nodes, 
you have a system under which people are required uh, not to do bargains with one another for their particular individual ends, but always to debate about what's to be done on the basis of considerations put forward that each expects reasonably everyone else can regard as at least relevant considerations so that you outlaw, as it were, sectarian considerations in favor of this or that decision at that particular node, then the idea is that a system of this kind, as I describe it, and obviously I can't now summarize the uh, even the main points of the system, but the idea mm -hmm. is that such a system can be designed so that over the long haul, not in the immediate day-to-day uh, -day politics, but over the long haul, you would expect that the considerations that get to have prominence in the system, uh, the ones that can indeed at every node be produced as ones relevant from everybody's point of view, get to exercise a filtering effect on policies so that no policies that uh, fail to pass muster with, um, with those considerations, fail to live up to them, get onto the table and in deciding between the different policies that do get onto the table, that do pass muster with those shared considerations, the ones that get selected have to be selected by procedures that themselves are supported by such shared considerations. Now, I argue that a system that uh, built uh, this um, way of decision-making in at crucial nodes and puts very supportive and protective um, guards around those nodes and establishes suitable channels between those nodes and between those nodes and, of course, exposure to the people, both in contestation and election, that a system of that kind can be expected over the long haul to force those in government towards a pattern of policy making and institutional reform, indeed, that satisfies those commonly expected, commonly valorized and considerations that bubble up uh, within the system. And I try to illustrate historically why, how something of that kind can be seen to have happened, for example, in 19th century Britain, as it grows more democratic, drawing on the work of the historian Oliver Macdonough, as I equally uh, gesture at the work recently of, um, of John Ferrijohn um, and um, and, and his colleague William Eskridge on the Republic of Statutes, as they call it, the development in America of certain, what would you call them, landmark considerations <laughs> have channeled and filtered and forced government policy in a direction that answers to them, where those landmark considerations are considerations that have a real hold in people's hearts that have gained that sort of hold, that have won that popular support. Now, insofar as government is constrained in those ways by considerations that bubble up from the people under a system of equally shared influence, to that extent, the people will have an equally shared control over the long haul direction that government takes. I call this slow democracy, so to speak. The democracy of control that satisfies the Republican rationale in the nature of the case has to be a sort of slow democracy. Uh, maybe Excellent. That's no, no. That was that was quite good, and I, I, you've given um, our listeners, uh, I think, a real nice uh, sense of the level of uh, of 
of detail, um, uh, empirical and otherwise, uh, uh, and the, the level of care with which uh, you treat um, uh, many of these uh, these issues. Um, this is a uh, you know on, on the people's terms. I, I found a, um, uh, a a really fascinating book uh, for that reason that you were when you get into talking about actual institutional issues um, uh, the level of detail goes far beyond what one typically gets um, from democratic theory so uh, I, I, I really applaud that um, but uh, that also means that the, the the kinds of details that that go uh, that, that you address in the book um, is th- this is far much more than than can be addressed in a uh, in our interview today uh, you've been very generous with your time Phil and um, uh, I want to just thank you uh, for talking to us today on New Books in Philosophy. Um, I always ask people at the end and feel bad about it, but in your case, I don't because you're such a prolific, dynamic philosopher. Um, last question. Um, what's on the horizon? What are you working on next? Well, what I'm working on actively um, is a um, is writing up a set of lectures, the O'Hero lectures that I gave in Oxford two years ago. Um, and uh, it's going to be called the robust demands of the good. Um, Mm. The subtitle is An Ethics of Attachment, Virtue, and Respect. It might equally be called An Ethics of Attachment, Virtue, and Freedom, because uh, what I've become aware of over the years in thinking about Republican freedom is that it displays a structure that other values do too. The structure I have in mind is one I describe as it's being robustly demanding. It's robustly demanding in the following sense. In order to enjoy freedom, say, in a given choice, say one of the basic liberties, between taking this job or that job, it has to be the case that um, you're not interfered with in the actual world where you opt for taking this job, but it also has to be the case that you wouldn't have been interfered with in the possible world where you opted for the other job. Equally, that has to be the case regardless of how other people feel towards you. Now, that's to say that in order to enjoy actual freedom, you have to have non-interference actually, but also non-interference in other possible worlds where you make other choices or had other preferences. That's to say that actual freedom requires robust non-interference, meaning non-interference across a range of possible worlds. Now, it's pretty clear that friendship requires robust care. Uh, someone isn't a friend if they're a fair-weather friend, if they just give you care and favor, for example, as things actually are, but wouldn't where it's less convenient, they've got to give it robustly. I think equally that virtues like honesty, you've got to tell the truth actually, but you've also got to tell the truth when it's inconvenient. So it requires robust uh, truth-telling. Now, as it happens, I think that once we recognize that many values are robustly demanding in that sense, that points uh, towards actually a whole set of interesting themes, but let me just sum it up by saying I think it points towards a reconceptualization of normative ethics. So uh, this is an interesting case where you can take a lesson from political philosophy, carry it over into moral philosophy or normative ethics and and find uh, uh, that it bears some fruit. Uh, That at least is the the hope. I should, yeah. Well, that sounds fascinating, and uh, I will certainly keep an eye out for uh, for the book. Um, but for now, let me thank you for talking to us today about On the People's Terms, a Republican Theory and Model of Democracy. Thank you, Philip. Thank you very much. Thanks for giving me so much time, Bob. Sure. Bye-bye now. 
been listening to my interview with Professor Philip Pettit of Princeton University. We're talking about his new book, On the People's Terms, A Republican Theory and Model of Democracy, which has just been published by Cambridge University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy, and thank you for listening.